0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info@thedistrict.church. At good morning, church. How are we this morning? That is good. Good to hear. My name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here. And Hopefully there's not too much feedback. Uh, I am moving a little bit slower this morning. I think I'm one of the youngest people I know that this week got diagnosed with shingles. Um, so I don't know if you're aware of that, but usually it's something that people over the age of 60 get. Um, and so I'm one of those lucky few um, on the younger side that, that got it. They say it's also stress-induced, um, so I'm just blaming it on church members. Um, as, uh, as, as my, my lot for the week. But anyways, uh, so if you see me wince up in pain at any point, it's just that it just feels like there's this constant uh, kind of gnawing as if someone's just like sanding my skin. And so that's kind of what I've been dealing with for the week. And so it's not been, not been the best. But um, all that to say, uh, today I, I hope is going to uh, be be twofold for us. I hope today is going to be, and on one end, uh, pleasurable as far as hearing truths from God's word, but also on the other side, I think it's going to be a little painful for for us in this room. Um, and and again, uh, because of what Christ is uh, doing and what He's teaching and what He's admonishing us, and and really, as today we see, is is a warning regarding false teaching. And as we see this false teaching. In the church um, of Colossae in the first century, uh, it is goodness. It it is so paralleled with uh, the things that we are uh, kind of being held captive by, if you will, uh, in our current day and age when it comes to where we look for truth, uh, how we define that truth, and then at the same time, how we begin to just kind of live it out and apply it to our lives. And so uh, I, I think this is not only a warning for the church, uh, in Colossae, but I think it's also a warning for us today to not be held captive by these things. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're at in our series um, as we're just walking through verse by verse the book of Colossians and uh, looking at the ultimate superiority and preeminence of Christ in all things. And so today's going to be just continuing with that same uh, stream of thought the preeminence of Christ. And, and I even titled this one, The Substance Belongs to Christ. As, as you'll kind of see, ultimately, that's, that's where we really want to land, is that it all belongs to Him, and, and He's the true substance. There's, there's other things that are shadows that we can kind of glean some type of truth from, but ultimately, substance, if you want true nourishment, if you want true satisfaction, if you want true truth, uh, it's ultimately going to belong to Christ. And so we'll see that as we walk through this. But it's going to be Colossians 2, uh, 8 through 23. 8 through 23 is what we're going to be looking at today. So beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is really kind of his his uh, um, uh, paraphrase for this entire passage. This is really what he's looking at here, is, is not having the people, the Christians, the believers in this church, be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's according to human tradition, that's according to the elemental spirits of the world, and then contrasting that to anything that's not according to Christ. And so he's kind of just laying this out there. There's going to be information that you're receiving that you're going to be believing in. And that information is either going to come from human tradition and elemental spirits of the world that he is then uh, kind of paraphrasing as philosophy. And he's not anti-philosophy. His philosophy simply just means love of wisdom. But regarding the current contextual philosophy that they are being held captive to, he's referring to the one that is just empty deceit. It's just vain, there's, there's vain lies. There's really nothing that's holding to it that actually is providing any type of satisfaction for the people within their current context. And he actually then begins to break down which philosophy he's ultimately talking about in regards to these human traditions and elemental spirits of the world. And we'll get into that here in a minute. But the main thing I want to show in this first verse, verse 8, is this contrast between a certain philosophy... That is not according to Christ. Because as we'll see in Scripture, Christ is also not anti-philosophy, nor is He anti-tradition, nor is He anti um, kind of this idea of of rudiments or spiritual disciplines or us having any type of responsibility on the backside of our salvation when it comes to us uh, doing work. Um, Now that work is not ultimately tied to our salvation but it is a response to our salvation. And so there is this idea of Christ having kind of a way of life that leads to flourishing, that leads to us being satisfied, that leads to us ultimately seeing Him for who He truly is. So it's not anti any of those things, but rather it's anti anything that's not according to Christ. So Christ does have a way of living. He has traditions and He has... um, elements that he prescribes within his walk of life that is led by the Spirit of God, that is according to the Scriptures, that he wants us to live out, that he wants us to participate in. But here, Paul is really drawing kind of a line in the sand that there are certain ways of living that are contrary. And he wants to draw those out so that the people will not be held captive to it. And as you'll see here in a minute what really he's looking at is this kind of idea of Gentile converts who are now adopting Jewish philosophy, specifically Hellenistic Jewish philosophy, within a religion that they are trying to kind of adapt or adopt within their form of Christianity. And so that's what he's going to kind of attack, and I'll get into the specifics of what he means by that here in a moment. But he wants to ultimately bring this to light so that Again, they're not held captive to it. That they're not held in prison to it. And he actually uses an interesting term uh, in the Greek for this idea of captivity. He only uses it in this one thing. And I actually in some way believe it's Paul not necessarily making a joke but using a pun. Because the Greek term here is uh which can be kind of a pun for synagogue. Where he's saying don't, don't be held captive by what's being taught in the synagogue but ultimately be held captive to what Christ is teaching. So if you're going to be a slave to something, don't be a slave to this empty deceit, but be a slave to Christ. So that's what he wants to get at here. And we'll see it as he kind of walks through this. So if there's a philosophy in this context, and it's full of empty deceit, and its means by which they practice this philosophy is human tradition and the ingredients which make up this philosophy is elemental spirits of the world, then what are they? Because all those things sound very ethereal. What is the specifics here? And he actually starts to kind of dive into the specifics. So I'm going to jump ahead and kind of skip the meat here in a minute that you'll see um, in verses 9 through 15. But what I want to look at is verses 16 through 23 to kind of get into the weeds of what he means by this type of philosophy. So look at verse 16 with me. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we see within this philosophy, it's embodied really three primary categories that you can group each of these things within. One is the nature and class of angels, the worship of angels. Two is the rituals of the Mosaic law. And three is the regulations of Jewish tradition in just practical life. Really, those are the three things that kind of give the legs to this Jewish philosophy that they're kind of being deceived by. And ultimately, he's trying to warn them, don't be held captive to these these three categories. And so the ingredients that make this up, I'll begin with the regulations of Jewish tradition. The ingredients which make up this deceitful and unhelpful philosophy are just these elemental spirits of the world which in these verses are kind of these human traditions that they're talking about. These, these ideas from precepts and teachings of people who are coming forth with some type of level of influence that can kind of cultivate the culture around them to believe a certain thing and adopt it as absolute truth. And so for them, it's kind of this idea of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's a way of life. It's a don't do this, do this. Don't eat this, eat this. It's if you were to kind of look at it in our context, the influencers who are saying what you should buy and what you should look like and where you should spend your vacations and what you should do with your life and what's ultimately going to make you feel good about yourself. But for them, in this context, what they were doing was they were masking it as godliness. You want to be godly? Don't do this. You want to be godly? Do this. You want to be godly? Don't touch this. It reminds me of whether or not you can drink alcohol in the South. I mean, it it was, again, what might have started out with good intentions ultimately provides unbiblical or extra-biblical laws and regulations that are not Christian. And we see this over and over and over kind of play itself out where to be good, we've got to add to it. Or to be... Quote unquote, oversaved. Like, have you ever met anyone who's oversaved? Where it's like they, they come to know Christ, but then they have their way of life that they think is going to be ultimately the one that glorifies Christ. And so they're going to impose that on you when it's actually never found in Scripture. And we actually find these kind of people not to be, quote unquote, fun people, it's empty deceit. It's vain lifestyles. It's do these things as if it's honoring to God, but ultimately is not honoring at all. It's honoring to them. it, It was fabricated from people with influence to determine what was culturally acceptable and then sold that this is what God approves of. I mean, I remember kind of when I was in the beginning, coming to, to this understanding of Christianity and whether or not I believed in Jesus and wanted to follow Christ. Again, coming from this southern context and culture, my idea was, man, dude, if I become a Christian, does that mean I have to become like Ned Flanders? If you don't know who Ned Flanders is, you might be oversaved, <laughs> like, um it, In the sense that like, I grew up on, on, on The Simpsons, okay? So he's a character in The Simpsons. He's the neighbor to the to the Simpsons, and he's the, the Christian guy that never does anything wrong, but he's just a nerd uh, who doesn't do anything that's fun. And so it's kind of this idea that I had of Christianity. But it came because of human traditions within the South that viewed Christianity as a subculture of holier-than-thou, and therefore we won't abide by anything that is an indulgence or that's enjoyable or that's fun. A little bit more of that here in a minute when we get to asceticism. And then he goes on to the Mosaic Law, verse 11, which I will come back to in a minute, reveals where Paul's teaching them the true reality of circumcision that's done without human hands. And I'm not talking about without human hands as far as like them getting some AI robots coming in to like do some some things to where they don't need human hands. No, he's talking about a circumcision that is of the heart, that is not physical, but one that is on the internal. And we'll get into that here in a moment. And then he talks about this idea of the worship of angels. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. And what asceticism is, is this severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Again, this kind of goes to that, that idea of alcohol in the South to the point that I even felt guilty when becoming a Christian. Well, let me just get this. What's my favorite beverage? Root beer. Thank you. I felt guilty holding a bottle of root beer out in public because of what people thought of me. Like that's this idea of asceticism is that you have to so self-discipline and have no kind of, of, of enjoyment that other people might think of you in a certain way or a specific way. Again, what started out as good intentions... Let's not put a stumbling block in front of a neighbor. Ultimately led to self-righteousness and extra-biblical rules and regulations. I mean, the Pharisees in this current context, especially the Jewish leaders in this current context, so took the Mosaic law as absolute rule and lifestyle for righteousness that when they're looking at tithing generosity... When they're looking at giving um, as kind of for them a floor was a tenth of everything that they had, to then going up to about 30 to 40 percent of everything that they had. I mean, they were even tithing to the synagogue and to the religious leaders their spices. I mean, that would be like us like giving a series on generosity and saying that like you've got to give a percentage of everything within your house. And so if you've got 10 pieces of furniture, like we're expecting some couches to show up here. Like it, we're, we're needing some, some like dill leaves to start rolling in. And like we, we need you to give of everything that you have as if that's what it means to be good and Christian. And that's what they were doing in this day and age. They were, they were going above and beyond by creating rules and regulations. And it wasn't so that the people would be free It was actually to control. To control. Which again, is anti-gospel. Because what does the gospel do? Sets you free. To be generous. And to be giving. And to live a lifestyle that's honoring to God. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. One of the reasons Paul systematically teached the preeminence and superiority of Christ among the Colossians was because they were buying into the lie that angels were equal to Christ and should have been worshipped and prayed to. This is where you begin to get this mixture of saints being elevated to this kind of role of Christ as mediators which obviously you've now seen that begin to, to uh, along the, if you trace the Roman Catholicism, that's where that idea gets adopted into. Is instead of kind of shifting this idea of praying to and worshiping angels, we will pray to and worship saints, other believers, bishops, priests, as though they are the mediators of Christ, and it's heresy. That's to just put it lightly. It's heresy. It's heretical. We don't need to worship angels and we don't need to worship saints. We worship Christ because He is our mediator for us. And He's pretty good at it. We don't need anything else to do this. The people were then going on in detail about these visions they were having of angels appearing to them for worship. And contrary to the humility the gospel produces, they were being puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. One of the most deadly movements I'm seeing right now within the Christian culture is this emphasis on seeing visions and having prophetic words from from the Lord. I was actually speaking with Mitch Stafford, one of our covenant members here at the church over the past couple of weeks regarding a movement that has people referring to themselves, and and I'm not making this up, I wish I was, people referring to themselves as celestial futurists with the gift of terraform who can prophetically predict the monetary outcomes of your life and companies if you are a business owner. I mean, I've never done drugs, but I have to assume like you need them to interpret what that even means. But this is like, and this is, Fastly growing right now. It's kind of like taking the idea of a chaplain on a sports team and adopting it within the corporate world where people are bringing in these celestial futurists to essentially predict for them market turns, organizational shifts that they need to do, all kinds of things in order for them to proposition themselves for success in whatever that is defined. But it's these people who are coming in with this empty deceit of, I've got visions within spirituality, and I've got these prophetic words that are not necessarily biblical, but the Lord is speaking to me, and so therefore, I'm going to relay what He is saying. And to kind of put our cards out there on the table, the ability to say, thus says the Lord, extra-biblical to the 66 books of the Bible, has ceased with the Apostles. There is no new scripture to be added. There is no new communication from God that is necessary for the building and advancement of His church and for the flourishment of His people that He has not already communicated to us through His inspired word. So, if someone comes to you, even within our church, if someone comes to you and says, I've got a word of the Lord from you, First of all, don't walk the other way. Hear them out. Because there is the gift of admonishment. There is the gift of exhortation. There is the gift of encouraging one another within the word. But what I would always ask is whatever that advice is that they give you, where is that found in Scripture? And if it is filtered through Scripture and God has already communicated this and therefore I now want to communicate what God has already communicated, then absolutely receive that word from the Lord. As thus says the Lord, not thus says Jordan Duran. I'll pick on him. We trust what he's already said, not what we kind of muster up within our sensuous minds, puffed up with our own visions of grandeur about what God's activity is. In a moment, I'll show you how Paul defends the true gospel in light of these philosophies. But first, I'd like to bring this forward again 2,000 years to today. We we may not be tempted to to be taken captive by the, the, the role of angels or whether or not the Ten Commandments should be authoritative or whether or not we should be circumcised or uncircumcised, but one thing is very true. There are philosophies in our current day that are trying to take us captive. And honestly, the enemy is running the same play that they were running in the first century. Make it look as close to Christian as possible. Make it appear as though it is from the Lord. Make it sound biblical. But in the end, it's ultimately not biblical. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Screwtape Letters. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You're on your way to hell and you don't even know it because of just how small the detail is. I mean, one of... The enemies, Satan, the demons, the demonic realm, I just always refer to it as the enemy. One of the enemy's greatest strategy is to use scripture to deceive us. You ever realize that? They use scripture to deceive us. They make it seem as though it is God communicating to us what they ultimately want to accomplish. And we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. Here's the reality. Whether it's self-made religion of asceticism, avoiding... Anything of indulgence, whether it's severity to the body, extreme self-discipline, which offers no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's again, all behavioral modification. It's just behavioral modification. It's a shadow. It's using the shadows that we're referencing to Christ as the actual source to true righteousness. Righteousness. But it's never getting to the substance that ultimately belongs to Christ. So whether it's self-made religion, self-discipline, we've shifted those severities to be softer and have started calling these philosophies self-help, self-promotion, self-made identity. We've abandoned the God who gave us our identity and we're seeking to self-identify. And we've packaged this all up with phrases like just look within. Believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Just be yourself. I mean, think about it. In mainstream media, is this not what the message is? Listen, there's nothing more that robs you of experiencing your truest self than looking for it within yourself. Nothing robs you more than trying to find your true self by looking within yourself. I'm not a big traveler, especially during a pandemic, but if you told me I had to stay in my bedroom for the rest of my life, I'd be pretty sad. First of all, it's a mess, and it's only going to get worse if I'm in it. Secondly, there are a few books in my bedroom right now on my nightstand, but it's not enough to keep my interest for a lifetime. Thirdly, my room is far too small a place for a human being to ultimately live out their adult life. Compared to looking to the God of the universe, looking within for my philosophy is like staying in my bedroom for the rest of my life. If I look to God, I have a whole universe to explore. If I look within myself, I only have those boundaries. And they're bleak. I have ideas beyond my wildest imagining and I have love beyond my wildest dreams if I'm looking at it through God. Compared to looking to the God of the universe, looking within for my philosophy is... Is really a prison. Because there's a name for when we make somebody stay in their room for the rest of their lives, and it's called jail. I would not choose that voluntarily. But yet, right now, like that is sweeping the nation. Not long ago, relativism defined kind of the cultural conversation. Truth was essentially unknowable. Perhaps it was somewhere out there, but anyone's guess as to where was as good as the next. And so it was just kind of relative to, to, to where you find it and your path to getting to it and the journey that you take. It, again, it's all just relative. Just figure it out for yourself. But that's really no longer the case in our culture. Today, we're in a new cultural moment, one marked not by relativism, but by a new phenomenon known as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. While relativism may label an assertion of external and objective truth as arrogant, expressive individualism calls it oppressive. The relativist asks, Who's to say what's true? The expressive individualist replies, me. I get to say what's true. Based on what I think, what I feel. And what I've perceived and what I know. Look across the landscape of cultural artifacts and you'll find the same motive time and time again. Power and freedom are found in self-discovery. As Tim Keller notes, the only heroic narrative we've got left in our culture is the individual looking inside, seeing who they want to be and asserting that over and against everyone else in society. Whatever you believe you are becomes absolute authority to which you can then exert that over and assert it over everyone else that's around you. This is why we are in such a hostile and volatile moment when it comes to conversation that happens to disagree. Because the narrative by which we are operating right now is what I say goes. And it's absolute truth. Though so we've really moved on from relativism, truth is now not only knowable, it's been found All you have to do is look inside yourself to find it. And many in the church can, hopefully, sniff out and refute relativism. We've been handed enough kind of apologetic tools and basic reasoning skills to dismantle the notion that truth is subjective. But expressive individualism, however, is more insidious. It allows us to appear as if we're worshiping God, when in reality we're bowing to the God of self. It acknowledges the power of Jesus, but convinces us that He intends to use His power to further our own self-centered goals and aspirations. It agrees we can be certain about truth, but points to our own hearts as the source of that truth. Biblically speaking, it's difficult to find two terms more antithetical than self and church. It's not as though we must wade through kind of this cloaked language to discover this. When Jesus calls us into His church, His charge is not that we discover ourselves, but that we deny ourselves. I mean, that's the doorway into Him is to deny yourself and to acknowledge Him. As John the Baptist says, He must increase, we must decrease. I mean, you don't see that being preached within the messages of our media. It's the opposite. Everyone else around you must decrease, you must increase. Your truth is what needs to get out. When Jesus calls us, Deny ourselves. Further, when Jesus enumerates the things that spring forth from our hearts, truth does not make that list. Only false testimony and evil thoughts do. You see, Jesus warns us, just as Paul's doing here, of believing or being held captive to any type of philosophy that's coming from human tradition. He's warning us himself that when you look within, to your heart or your mind, the only thing that protrudes from that is false testimony and evil thoughts. And that's why we need, as Ezekiel 32 says, and as Jeremiah 32 says, we need a new heart, and we need to have the heart of stone removed. We need to be reborn, as Jesus says, because we need a new identity, because that old identity only is bent towards self. So the only way to deny ourselves when we're bent towards ourselves is to have a complete shift. And not only a shift, but as you'll see in a moment, a death. Truth is neither relative nor self-generated. It is knowable. In fact, it's touchable. Ultimate truth exists in the form of a man, the God-man the one who died for our sinful hearts so that we could die to them. See, The fruit-desiring, lie-believing, wilderness-wandering self is the very thing we bury as we are buried with Christ. His death for us becomes our death to self. And His new life becomes our new life. A life in which we deny ourselves instead of listening to ourselves in which we take up our cross instead of taking up our dreams, in which we follow him instead of following our hearts. So as a philosophy, follow your heart is deadly. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus instead. And I want you to see why as we look at verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here he's starting to combat these kind of three categories that the people are being held captive to as this empty deceit and this vain philosophies. Specifically here he's kind of attacking this idea of worshiping angels as if kind of that is a goal that one day we will attain the level and degree to which angels are. And he's reminding them, you're shooting too low. Christ is the head of all rule and all authority. And we are co-heirs with Christ. Not only that, we are filled in Him as He is in us. And if we are in Him, where is Christ in heaven? Seated at the right hand of God God on the throne where angels are coming to Him, worshiping Him. So it's not this idea, like if if we land in a place where we are just mesmerized of worshiping angels, then the satisfaction that we actually receive when worshiping an object will fall short and will crumble because angels are not meant to ultimately be in a place of worship. And the satisfaction that is supposed to come from that, the joy that we receive, is not going to be met there because ultimately when we see angels and what our worship was designed to give to, we're going to be let down. We're going to see them as, oh, you're not as glorious as maybe I thought you were in my vision that I had at one point. And that's why here Paul is kind of attacking this idea that, hey, Angels don't have the fullness of deity dwelling within them bodily. They're not at the head of all rule and all authority. Christ is. And you're filled up in Christ. Therefore, don't shoot for the angels. We're shooting for Christ. Don't end there. As kind of C.S. Lewis says in another one of his books, you just it's not that you desire too much, it's that you desire too little. Paul then moves on to this Mosaic law and Jewish rituals, namely circumcision, verse 11. In him that is Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I have to wonder, like, how many guys, this is probably inappropriate. But just how many guys in this context are reading this letter, like when they're hearing like the, the, the elders of the church read this letter to the church, and they're hearing that, and they're thinking, Dude, I just had that appointment on Tuesday. I could have totally bypassed that entire thing. Like, But this is, what's, this is what they're dealing with. They're believing a lie that they have to go through with the Jewish traditions of the Mosaic law of being circumcised in order to be determined as a part of God's people. And what he's saying here is, hey, uh, that was shadow stuff. Substance belongs to Christ. Circumcision was an outward... Um, an outward uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ritual done in order to uh, have the people be viewed as a part of God's people. Now, circumcision is not no longer the practice used to view whether or not people are part of God's people. It's just whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ and have spiritually had the circumcision of your heart where the sin has been removed and you are brought through now by being buried with Christ and risen with Christ into the new life. That the old heart has been cut away and the new heart has been given to you. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith and powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. breaking down that beautiful truth of what God is doing with the shadows and the substance when it comes to this idea of circumcision of the heart and being buried with Christ and baptism, being raised with Christ. And so because I don't have enough time in the sermon today to do that, Ransford's going to be unpacking that for us next week, specifically that part. So it's going to be a good one. What I want to close out with today is I just want you to see how what God is doing is not coming from anything that we think of. It's not coming from any list that you make in order to better yourself over the next 10 years. It's not coming from any type of human traditions. It's it's literally God working on your behalf through His Son, Jesus Christ, that is possessing all rule and all authority, and that He's making you alive when we are spiritually dead. This is what He's doing. And so I want to read for you a passage that is the parallel of this passage. This is in Ephesians. If you weren't aware, when Paul's writing Colossians, he's also writing Ephesians at the same time, in the same jail cell, And so these two books really parallel one another. And I want to read Ephesians chapter 2 for you. Just so that this truth, again, this hopefully is the pleasurable part for you. The painful part is stop listening to yourself. Stop trusting your own heart. Stop listening for that inner voice within you. If it's not... God's word and if it's not the spirit of God who's making it evident in you and I know that can be ethereal at the same time how do I know whether it's the spirit of God who's kind of giving me the gut punch or how do I know it's my flesh that's giving me the gut punch usually it's going to happen in a couple of different ways it's going to happen in you finding it in scripture that leads you as well as some external factors where the church of God comes around you and says hey I think this is how God's moving in your life So that, again, that internal calling that can again be kind of ethereal can also be affirmed by those around you as well as affirmed ultimately by God's Word as it is getting embedded within you. And prayer is always going to help align those things together. The more we pray to God for His Spirit to move within us, is when He is aligning our deceitful hearts to His truth as His Spirit is growing within our hearts and is moving within our hearts and is aligning us with His will that is ultimately going to lead to our joy. And so here's where He's at in Ephesians 2. Just let this just encourage you that you don't have to do anything. Verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins you were dead last time you've been to a cemetery they're not doing a lot right you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience again just kind of nailing all of those ideas of philosophies Uh, regulations that you're walking in, elemental spirits of the world, all of those things, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man, that's encouraging. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and you have been raised and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in christ jesus For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not. Just in case you were thinking that that faith, oh, there it is. That's the thing that I can muster up within myself. That's what's been dormant within within me since there's kind of some good within me when I'm born. No. In case you were thinking that, stop. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's not one person who will get into heaven on behalf of saying, Look what I did. Look how awesome I was. Like God was putting together a kickball team and he picked me because he knew I was fast, or he picked me because he thought I could kick it over. Or he picked me because I had good hands where I could catch. No. If you actually do a lot of good study throughout Scripture, God picks the guy with one leg. Like, how are you going to play kickball with one leg? Like, God picks the blind person, He picks the uneducated. Like, He picks those who the world would not look at as anything that would be successful. I love that. No one is going to boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God also prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, and that's us, unless you're actually Jewish in here. You are. I'd love to hear about that. But you Gentiles, which is everybody that's not Jewish, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What he's ultimately saying there is that if you're a Gentile, you didn't even know the Messiah was coming. Because who was God communicating to throughout the entire Old Testament? The people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish nation. So he's saying even more so for you who are Gentiles to be brought into this fold. What in the world would you have to boast of? For he himself... I got off, hang on. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, the blood of Christ. It's not even your own. Like you don't have to sacrifice yourself to figure this thing out. You don't have to work your way to it. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is one of the greatest passages that should be used for our current Cultural climate when it comes to racism. Because now what he's talking about is the combining of Jewish and Gentile people to become one. And the beauty in this is that he's not saying don't honor your culture as there are still Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians as believers. They're coming together to form one people, but they still honor the fact that they are different by dividing this wall of hostility, by breaking it down and seeing that, oh, you know what, you Jewish people? um, Yeah, God may have been communicating to you these promises for a lot of years, but you still did not do a very good job in following those promises, You've got nothing to boast of. If anything, when God looks throughout Scripture and is inspiring His Word to be written, He's not shedding a great light on those Israelites. How many times are they referred to as stiff-necked idiots? But yet the Gentiles also don't have anything to boast of either, as they are blindly following all kinds of pagan religions. I mean, anything that looks good, let's go for it. It's kind of the indulgences of the flesh to the fullness. Not a lot to boast of there, as the Jewish people would constantly call them just pigs. And they would actually prefer being with pigs than Gentiles. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both get there the same way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are all coming together as the church, whether Jew or Gentile, one people in which God resides, which He dwells, in which in that temple we worship Him. We honor Him. He's the one seated on the throne, not us. And and just so that this doesn't get mixed up here, when he says that this is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, what he's saying there is ultimately the prophets of the Old Testament is the ones in which God inspired to record Scripture, thus says the Lord. Then the apostles of the New Testament are the same ones that God uses to inspire His communicated Word to be, thus says the Lord, therefore the Word of God is the foundation upon which the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is then placed and the church is built upon. Therefore, if you go to a church that does not preach the word of God and does not elevate Christ as preeminent, then that church cannot in any way whatsoever be built and advance the gospel. It can't happen. Those are literally the two primary factors in which God built His Church, the preaching and proclamation of the word of God and Christ being preeminent, the cornerstone. I love what he also says in Romans 9, 1 through 3. This is right after, think about this, this is right after the great eight. Eight passage as a lot of theologians refer to Romans 8. When he just finishes with Romans eight thirty-seven through 39 In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says this as he finishes that idea. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I love that. Conscience ethereal. He could just literally be saying like, my gut bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I want you to see what is produced out of this. Because I think this right here is the biggest key to understanding whether or not your heart is being in the Spirit or your heart is being in your flesh. And how to kind of discern the difference between those two. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9 verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, let's just think about this for a minute. After him understanding this truth of who Christ is, And that we can't get to Christ regarding any type of human tradition, regarding any type of self-made religion, any works to get us there. Coming to this understanding, he's saying the furthest thing that I need to do is look within myself from a heart perspective. Or that I need to be selfish. It actually produces for him the extreme opposite. You want to know whether or not your heart is in the Spirit? Have you ever had the thought, I wish I were cut off from the blessing of eternal life with Christ? If it meant that my neighbor would come to know Christ and be with him for eternity. I mean, that's just insane to me. I mean, that's as selfless as it can possibly get. Now, he knows what he just preached then nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Even if he wished to be accursed and cut off from Christ, he knows Christ will not do it. But he's so moved in his spirit and in his heart that is in Christ that there is no room for looking within, for self-help, self-made help self made self-promotion, selfishness. There's absolutely no room for it. It becomes so other-minded that he'd be willing to be cut off from Christ for the sake of others. I mean, in our current cultural climate, how counter-cultural is that? And I just wonder, like again, I just wonder, I, what does that look like played out on just a daily basis? Man, how many few arguments we would have if we don't have to win the arguments? How many fewer People would be around us in need if we saw that the resources that we possess could go to benefit them and provide for them because we don't need them. I I, I think we need to... We just need to take some moment right now. Well, I think we just need to pray on this. Because <laughs> I just know for me, that's what I battle with every single day. Is I battle with this constant, constant voice of flesh that is saying, man, serve yourself. Indulge yourself. And the answer isn't asceticism. Let me just beat my body to the point to where I don't indulge in anything. It's not that. That's not the answer. But the answer is ultimately, okay, I, I, if I can't trust in my flesh because it's constantly telling me, succeed, make yourself look good, get others to serve you, get others to, to do for you what you need them to do. Like it's If that's what my flesh is promoting, Christ is promoting, and again, for my good, Deny it. Don't believe that lie. Reject it. Don't seek out your identity in your flesh. Seek out your identity in Christ because a redeemed identity that is in Christ is going to just protrude from you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness, and self-control, all the things that you need in order to actually experience life and life abundantly. And it's not anything that serves you. It's actually an expression that goes out of you that provides for you the greatest life possible. And I just think, like, we just need to pray. I'm going to shut up. We need to pray And so let's just have a moment. It's just going to be silent. And let's just look to Christ. And let's just, I mean, maybe just this, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for my neighbors, for my family who doesn't know Christ. I would say my coworkers, but I really hope they know Christ. (laughs) Your coworkers that might not know Christ. Are we living in a way that, that models that? Man, let's pray. Let's just focus on Jesus right now. Deny ourselves and exalt Him in our hearts. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the